Good morning again. Um, if you weren't expecting to see me this morning with someone else, I have to apologise. Alan Cutting and I swapped places of who was speaking twice, which really threw a lot of the schedules and stuff um, for various reasons. Uh, we, ha- we had to do that. Sometimes when you're asked to speak um, in church, the Lord lays something on your heart, something definite, this is what he wants to say. To be honest, at other times you think, what am I going to talk about? And other times, again, there are lots of different thoughts and things that seem to come at you and collide. And that's more like what's happened this morning, to be honest. Lots of different thoughts that collide. Hopefully they will all come together and make sense. If not, as I said, my name's Alan. Um, (laughs) There seems to be a a widespread belief. You've probably encountered it yourself. Um, A lot outside the church, but also inside the church too. That the God of the Old Testament is different, almost a different God, from the God of the New Testament In the Old Testament, he was judgmental. The New Testament, he's loving. The Old Testament is full of law. The New Testament, grace. Grace and forgiveness. I've even been on a course once um, in a church where the leader said that in the Old Testament, God is never referred to as Father. And that's a whole new concept in the New Testament. That's clearly wrong. He is called Father in the Old Testament. Isaiah and others refer to God as father. And if you think how much they thought of Abraham as the father of the nation. But you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us, or Israel acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer. From of old is your name. They did. The God of the Old Testament is the same God the same Father God as the God of the New Testament. Many of the things Jesus said that we regard as as very New Testament were actually quotes from the Old Testament. And there's a lot of love and forgiveness in the Old Testament. We also find Jesus cursing and judging cities that didn't accept him. And there's certainly a lot of judgment in the book of Revelation of God judging. We're going to have a look this morning at the relationship between some of these things, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and a little about um, how I saw God seeming to be working uh, when I looked at some of this. And we're going to start right at the beginning. And I have spoken about this before in the book of Genesis, It's on page three of your church Bibles, right at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. In the first two verses of Genesis, we're presented with a problem that God addresses. The earth was formless 
and empty. That's a problem. How do you deal with that problem? You give it form and you fill it. Very simple. And if you look, actually, it might help if you have Genesis 1 open in front of you. What does God do on the first day? You can answer. Light. Light and darkness, day and night. Okay, what does he do on the second day? You weren't expecting to have to respond, were you? Water. Water and sky. He separ- sea and sky. He separates above from below. Sea and sky. Day three. What does God do? Dry land and plants. A landscape. God makes a landscape on day three. Now, if you look at those three, they are all forms. They're all landscapes of a type, of places. He has created form. So now they need filling. What would you fill night and day with? Light and dark. How about day four? Sun, moon and stars. See the pattern? He formed on day one. Day four, three days later, he fills. Sea and sky. What are we going to put in the sea and sky? Birds and fish. Okay? Landscape. What are we going to fill it with? Animals and people. Day six. The problem was formless and empty. The solution is create form and fill. It works. The pattern works. Once someone explained that to me, it's almost unmissable every time you look at it. That's the pattern of Genesis 1. Now, the question is, can we take this pattern and see it elsewhere in the Bible? Can we see the pattern of God creating something, setting something up, that he then later fills and does something more with. How about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament? God setting up a form, a form to help people understand that by death, by a substitutionary death, <coughs> sins can be forgiven. Although we're told in the New Testament they can't really, the death of animals won't really do it. But he's giving them the form, the understanding. This is what will, will work. This is the form. And he fills it. He fills this idea with Jesus. Jesus' death for our sins upon the cross. Form and filling. What about Israel as a nation? A nation separated from God, taking a nation, making them special. The whole concept of doing that, holy, separated to God, it creates an idea, creates a pattern that he then fills to a much, much greater extent in the New Testament. The church, a holy people separated for God, a kingdom of priests 
worldwide, much, much bigger. That's the fulfillment. What about the law of the Old Testament? We're told we're not under law anymore. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, Paul says in Galatians. And he says in Ephesians, abolishing in his flesh, that's Jesus' flesh on the cross, the law with its commandments and regulations. So if they're gone, surely that's not part of this pattern, this forming then filling. Well, I want to look at the Ten Commandments, all of them, uh, very quickly, don't worry, they're not going to be here forever. Um, otherwise, this will be something like a 15, 16 point sermon. Um, and just look at what the New Testament says about the Old Testament Ten Commandments. And I think some of the responses are actually quite surprising, particularly if you think of the Old Testament as being more severe than the New Testament. Number one, this is in Exodus 20 on, I can't remember the page, but hopefully you found it earlier. No other gods. You'll have no other gods before me. Quite an all-encompassing law, it would seem. But what does the New Testament say? Not just that there won't be any other gods before him, but it goes beyond that, as Claire quoted, in Romans 12, verse 1, that we offer our whole bodies, our whole beings as a sacrifice. Not just that there aren't any other gods, but that all we have is given to him, all we are. That actually seems stronger than the Old Testament commandment. But number two, don't make idols. Fairly simple and straightforward if you take it as the, the physical idols that, um, that were made. We just don't make any. A negative, something not to do. But it goes a bit stronger in the New Testament. John tells us in one of his letters... Um, 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or anything in the world. Much more all-encompassing than the Old Testament commandment. Not just to not make an idol. Not to make, not to love anything at all in the world. Do not put it before God, is what he's saying. Don't misuse the name of the Lord. Often translated, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Now, in context, um, I know we use it in a slightly different sense sometimes today, but it's talking about a law case. Don't swear by the name of the Lord when it's not true. Take oaths under God's name seriously is really what it's saying in context. And Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Not just don't take the Lord's name in vain, don't swear, make a big oath to the Lord and not fulfil it, but in everything, let your yes be yes and your no, no. You as a person, everything about you, me as a person, everything about me, yes, yes, no, no. Nothing beyond that. Commandment four. Remember the Sabbath day. This was a day to remember God. A day put aside specially. Once a week. The New Testament, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. We're going to make a point of uh, doing that later with communion. But beyond that, it seemed that every time they broke bread and took wine, and let's remember, in the culture they were in, that was every meal, at least once a day. Remember God. Remember God every time you sit down to eat. Remember him. Not just once a week, every time. (coughs) Maybe Jesus thought we needed a little more reminding than the Old Testament. But every time you eat, remember God. Honour your father and mother. Have you ever heard anyone say, it says honour, it doesn't say obey when there's a problem. Fortunately, the New Testament says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, I think there's the obvious um, thing, if, if it's not in the Lord, they're asking you to do something that's completely outside of God's will, that's fair enough. But um, obey your parents. Again, it seems stronger than the Old Testament law. You shall not murder. I think we'd all go along with that one. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, says John. Jesus said something very similar. Do not hate. You shall not commit adultery, law 7 of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus said anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, a stronger law than the Old Testament. You shall not steal. Again, Paul writes to the Ephesians, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. We've gone from the don't steal, don't take other people's stuff, to a actually give, give to others. That's Quite a big jump from a a just don't do this to an actively do something that's the opposite. Don't give false testimony against your neighbour. Don't slander your neighbour. Speaking the truth in love is how the New Testament puts it. And I've said before... um, That verse is so often used as an excuse for criticising other Christians. I was speaking the truth in love. Read it in context. It's about spreading the gospel. Giving the truth, the gospel of Jesus, to other people. Don't just, don't give false testimony. Don't slander your neighbour. Bring the gospel to him. Speak the truth to him. Last one. Don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbour, there's a whole list of things from asses to wives, don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbour. Jesus says, love your enemy, your neighbour as yourself, rather. Love your neighbour as yourself. Don't just, don't envy them, love them positively, actively, love them. And so where are we? We've got a set of rules now in the New Testament that actually seem much harsher much stronger than those of the Old Testament that we thought of as the the harsh rules. But there is a big difference. There's a huge difference. As you read the New Testament, you learn that the laws there were given 
not to make people holy. You couldn't become holy by obeying the laws. They were there to point out that you couldn't make it, how far short you fell. That's what the laws were really for. And we've got this um, dichotomy, I suppose, is the right term, um, where in one sense Christ is the end of the law, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. That's what Paul teaches. And yet, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Interestingly, I looked up the, um, the Greek word that's translated fulfill there, and it can mean furnish, or to fill up, or to cram full, like a net being crammed full of things. And I just quite like that, as the whole point of this is forming and filling. It can mean that type of filling as well. But let's be fair, the primary meaning is to fulfill. Um, that, that's really what, it, what he's talking about. In fact, I'd actually say, be careful sometimes when you're told a word in the Old Testament or New Testament, the Greek derives from this thing, or we then use the definition of it in our words that mean this, because that can be really misleading at times. Have you ever heard anyone say the... Um, the word for power, when um, the Holy Spirit will give you power, is um, dunamis. It's the same word we get, it's the way we get the word dynamite from. You've probably heard that. Well, every point of that is true, but of course it just meant power. And the diner part of dynamite means power, as does dynamo or dinosaur. They all mean exactly the same thing, they just mean power. But of course there's an implication by saying this is the word we get dynamite from, that, that isn't entirely true. Paul wasn't thinking about dynamite when he wrote that. He just meant power. Or the Lord loves a hilarious giver. The word is the word we get hilarious from, that's translated cheerful. Well, there's nothing wrong with being a hilarious giver, but it meant cheerful. Just because we get a word later from it doesn't mean that that's what the person meant when they said it. When you talk in English, do you ever say things thinking about how that word will be translated and later used by a later generation? Probably not. Do you ever say things thinking, well, this is where the root of that word comes from? You probably don't. You just mean it as it's used normally in everyday English. Sincerely is a good example. You know what sincerely comes from the words without wax? And it was of a pot that was made. If it had a crack, they'd put some wax in the crack before they glazed it, so it looked perfect, but it was actually flawed. Sincerely meant without wax, therefore it was a perfect pot. You don't mean that when you say sincerely at the end of a letter, do you? You just mean, I'm sincere. But um, finding out what the real words use can be really useful, but if ever someone tells you it means this and it clearly changes the meaning of what's being said, the people who translated the Bible normally knew what they were doing, so they're pretty good. Sorry, that's a bit of a deviation. But um, Anyway, as I was saying, in the New Testament, it becomes clear the Lord doesn't make people holy. Jesus did come to make people holy. 
The Old Testament law is a try and fail system. The New Testament law is a be transformed. And then you can try system. It's very different. These things that that seem harsher in the New Testament aren't things that we really, really have to strive for to be proper Christians. They're outworkings of what being a Christian is, being transformed inside by God. If we're transformed, this will begin to happen. You will find that you are more like this. Not because we have to do it to become holy, but we are made holy so that we can do it. It's a very different approach. And we fail, we all fail. We know that, I fail. Um, None of us has uh, attained all of those. It's a growth. It's a step-by-step, we get nearer, and we know when we fail and we ask for forgiveness and we ask for God's help. And he supplies that help. And perhaps we never quite get there, but we get nearer. John puts it like this. I don't know what I've done with my Bible. Here it is. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. That's um, 1 John chapter 3. God the Father calls us children of God. That is what we are. That is is what you are. If you trust in Christ, you are a child of God. Not you will be, or if you um, obey these laws properly, you'll eventually get there, or in heaven. But that is what we are now, right now. Children of God. How great the Father's love that that is so. Dear friends... So at the next verse, dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. We can't even imagine what that's going to mean in the future. We aren't there yet. It's going to get better. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus returns, at the completion of all things... We shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We will be like him. I mean, a lot of those New Testament laws were a good picture of what Jesus was like. We will be like him. We will be transformed. We're not there yet. But right now, if we fail, if it seems harsh, if it's a unobtainable goal at times it seems we are children of God how much he has loved us don't worry if it's a struggle everyone says John who has this hope in mind purifies himself just as he Jesus is pure purifies himself because he has that hope. If you have that hope, you are purified. But there's still that aspect of sometimes I fail, I need God's help, I need to work a little harder on this area sometimes. That's all true. John recognises that. But right now, we are 
children of God. What about other areas of our life? Does this forming and filling... Sorry, I didn't explain, did I? The Old Testament law I saw as a forming, um, a giving a pattern, the fulfilling being Christ changing us. Does it apply to other parts of our lives, of what goes on today? Is that how God works sometimes? I heard a story this week. Wagadougou. A few people looked up. It's not the song from the 80s. That was Agadou. Sounds similar. Anyone know what Ouagadougou is? It's a capital city. Does that help? Probably not. <laughs> Any idea where Ouagadougou is the capital city? No. Sorry? No. Chad. Chad? No, afraid not. Does that help? Mm. It's Burkina Faso. Ouagadougou uh, is the capital of Burkina Faso. There it is. You can... Uh, just about the red little dot in the middle of the country there, in uh, West Africa. Um, I work for a missionary society. Um, I hadn't said that earlier. SIM, which stands for Serving in Mission. It used to be Sudan Interior Mission years ago. Some of you might have heard of it from that. But we just say Serving in Mission now because we work in a lot more places than Sudan. And um, a colleague has just come back from Burkina Faso. He's done a tour um, looking at some of the projects that SIM was working on there. And one of them stood out to me, and I, I'm going to tell you the story that, that he told us. Fortunately, he got back before the plane strike. Not everyone did in SIM. We had people trapped in India, in all sorts of places. Um, not strike, you know, the volcano. Um, the planes weren't working. He told us, last September in Ouagadougou, three storms collided that were moving across the country. There were horrendous floods. Um, guy at the top obviously doesn't want to miss Coronation Street. He's taking his telly with him. Uh, but you can see the cars and the bikes trying to get through the water. It was horrendous. Fortunately, only three, it was, fortunately, only three or four people died. That's relatively low for that kind of um, disaster. Partly because most of the houses were built of mud brick. And if you have a mud brick house and the flood comes, it slowly dissolves from the bottom and sinks down. So it takes hours for it to reach the point where it collapses. Enough time for most people to get out. It's not like an earthquake where everything crumbles. Um, so very few people were, uh, were killed. But um, it was, a lot of people were displaced. A lot of people were in camps being looked after, given food. Could this be something that God was creating a form for, a, a landscape to do something? Well, you wouldn't have thought so. It's a bit of a disaster, isn't it? The guy on the left here, his name's Joshua. I'm told that smile is nearly always on his face and his heart's even bigger than his smile. He saw it as an opportunity. There were all these kids who couldn't get to school anymore who were trapped by the floods. Well, trapped, they were out of them, but they were dis displaced. They weren't at home. They couldn't get to their normal school. So he set up a school. He set up a Christian school teaching the kids just out in the open general teaching, and teaching them about God as well. Now, if you don't know, Burkina Faso is mostly a Muslim country. It's the predominant religion there, Islam. And four imams, um, the uh, Muslim equivalent of priests or leaders, 
went to Joshua and said, we don't like this. You must stop teaching the children about Christianity. In fact, one of them came back later and threatened to kill him if he continued. Joshua continued. A little while later, the imam who had threatened his life came to him privately and said, I can see that God is in what you are doing, the way you are caring for these children and teaching them. It didn't seem very promising. Threats of life, threats to your life, could this be something God was orchestrating and setting up? Opposition. But this man said, I can see God, or Allah, as he he saw it, is, is in this. I've got to move to a different part of the country, he said, because of his work, because of what he did. Would you like my house to carry on teaching in, to run the school in? Yeah, Joshua has taken that house. He now teaches these children in a Muslim imam's house. He teaches them general teaching and about Christ. And God is in it. And the neighbours see Allah is in it, their name for God. God is in it. God took a very unpromising situation, a very unpromising form. He created this form, this, this place, Floods, persecution, threats to life, threats against Christianity. And he transformed it. He transformed it. He filled it with changed hearts, with love, and with building up people. It's an amazing story. It touched me when I heard it. It just can't help smile when you you hear things like that, what God is doing. Um, If you'll forgive me, I'll um, do a little advert I'm the graphic designer at SIM. That's what I do for a living. I design this magazine called Serving in Mission. There are copies out there. There are other stories about what God is doing in the world. And um, if, like Simon spoke a few weeks ago about praying for mission, there's a prayer diary in here too uh, for praying for different missionaries on different days. In fact, if you get to the 24th of August, which I'd encourage you to do, you pray for me amongst other people who work in the team. And as the request is that we get more people praying and supporting mission, you'll be helping to fulfil that prayer too. So uh, anyway, enough of the advert. What about you? What about your lives? Is God forming something in your life? Is he creating a circumstance, an area? Maybe through good things that are happening. Maybe through changes that are unsettling. Maybe through bad things. But he might be planning to fill with something. To fill with a new hope. To fill with a new power. A new direction. A new something. I don't know what. I expect you don't know what. That's the thing about God. He does miraculous things. He does unexpected things. He does things for his purpose in ordinary lives, at ordinary times, and in extraordinary places too.